Welcome everyone to the CEO.digital show. My name is Craig McCartney and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Today's guest is Rob Chaplin. He is an ethical hacker and head of cyber innovation at Phalanx Cyber. He routinely appears on TV and various other media to talk and inform about the latest in cybersecurity. He specializes in red teaming, cybersecurity awareness training, social engineering, penetration testing, and cybersecurity consultancy. Today, we're going to talk about ransomware. We're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about how even um, protecting people getting into your building will help with your cybersecurity challenges. Very much looking forward to the episode, and uh, we're about to get started. So welcome to the CEO.digital show, Rob. It's great to have you. Thanks, Greg. Hi, it's really nice to be on. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about you. I've seen a few of your interviews, and it looks like you're doing some interesting things. So why don't you start off by telling us about your sort of personal story to date and how you ended up at Phalanx and, and anything else that you think would be interesting? Okay, sure. So I got into cybersecurity about 15 years ago, back when it wasn't really a big thing for most companies. And I joined a company that was the first penetration testing company in the UK. So really early on in the sort of life cycle of, of ethical hacking. And that was back before there were any courses you could do. So nowadays you can do university courses and things in ethical hacking, but back then that wasn't really an option. So it was more about kind of getting trained up on the job. And I applied for a job of penetration testing, which... You know, I had a good laugh at that at the time. Thought that was funny. Never heard that job title before. So, so I had a look at it and thought, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Let's have a, let's have a go at that. I'd kind of I'd gotten a little bit of trouble at school doing some hacking stuff with like the IT admin and the schools, their computers and, and things. So when I saw you actually do it as a job, I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. So uh, applied for the job. Luckily, they were looking for someone quite new to the role and got into it, did some tests and things to see what my writing skills were like and things. And then literally the first three months was making tea. It was like it's back in that sort of old apprenticeship type thing where you would literally do nothing but make tea for a few months, just observe, <laughs> watching what's going on and start shadowing people and learning some of the basics. And there's kind of a, a path at that point anyway through ethical hacking where you start off with what we call external infrastructure, which is kind of the outside internet-facing presence of a company. You start learning some of the, the ways of getting into that. Then you start looking at applications like websites. They're a little bit more complicated, so you learn that. Then you start going to a client's site and you sit down with them and you learn about their internal computer network and you start learning how to hack all those things. Then from there, I started to move into what we call red teaming and social engineering. And these are the sort of really good fun parts of my job where you're, you're targeting the people that work at an organization. So, for example, mm -hmm. I might be sending someone a phishing attack and trying to get them to open up a link or attachment. I might be phoning them and saying, hi, it's Rob here from your IT team. There's been some problem with your account. We need your password for some reason. The kind of the most stressful but also most fun part of it is the, the physical intrusion. So turning up at a company's office dressed up as one of their employees or as a, as a BT engineer 
or as a fire alarm technician or whatever you think might work based on your research and then getting into the building by doing that. And then once you're inside, you kind of bypass a lot of the cybersecurity defenses that the company have in place because mm. you're kind of getting past firewalls and things like that. You're in the building, you're hidden in the meeting room, and then you're hacking in from the inside. So my career kind of went in stages of increasing complexity throughout because it was done over quite a long time that allowed me to learn a lot about different sizes of companies and different sectors and things like that. And then the company I worked for got bought by Phalanx Cyber. So I kind of got brought into that team and then started leading the, the pen test team, the penetration testing team that is, and then moving more into the sort of public facing side of things that I do now. So a bit more of the media work and things, but I always keep up the red teaming because I think if you're going to be talking to the media about hacking, you need to be up to date on what's happening, right? And making sure that that the techniques and tools you're using is still up to date. I don't want to be one of those people that's talking about something they did 10 years ago. I want to be doing it right now. So I guess that's yeah. kind of what's led me to this point. I mean, it's an interesting industry to be in. I think it's more relevant now than it ever has been. You know, working from home and having all these additional points that you can access, that must be a huge concern for companies presently. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the biggest changes from a cyber perspective from the pandemic was suddenly everyone having to work from home. And it's not like we had loads of time to prep for it, right? We suddenly had to be able to support home workers very, very quickly. So the primary yeah. thing was getting infrastructure in place, not really testing how secure it was. It was much more important to allow people to connect in so that we could continue operating as businesses. So for those companies that didn't have a home working solution in place already or not a robust one, it meant they were opening up their network externally. Now, of course, because mm. people are working from all sorts of places around the globe, you can't restrict where they can access the network from. So that means it's accessible anywhere from the internet, meaning anyone that doesn't work for the company can also access that login page. So, you know, in order to operate, you've got to open up your email, you've got to open up your, your VPN so you can access documents, but there's all sorts of other applications and things you end up opening up, like your HR app to request holiday and all these things that contain personal data. Yeah. And companies didn't necessarily do that way, which meant that hackers had those extra windows to try and get into the computer network. And the other thing is people were working from home from their own home Wi-Fi kit. And I didn't speak to anyone in the first year of the pandemic that had been sent any information on how to secure their home Wi-Fi routers correctly. Yeah. So suddenly we've got everyone connecting in from a nice secure office. We've got 200, 500,000, how big the company is, different routers and things connecting in and you don't know have they been hacked into already you've got no idea so all sorts of issues wow. arose from that yeah how do you protect your home router then because <laughs> we haven't told our employees how to do it so well i guess yeah. i must tell anyone yeah, I mean, that <laughs> yeah I mean, it depends what level you want to go to so for, for most organizations you don't have to do too much you want to make sure that the password they're using on the wi-fi router is long enough generally means yeah. over 10 characters not really obvious not an obvious dictionary word with number like not password 12 for example would be pretty rubbish but yeah making sure it's long enough in most cases they are like if you've got a modern broadband router that has a long enough password and you can check in the back there's a little bit of plastic that you take out if you want to put a new device onto your network you always have to look up the security key and it's just that that you put in so you just make sure that's more than 10 characters and then when you're using any smart devices, like I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners will have Amazon devices or, or Google Home and Nest home heating systems, that sort of stuff. They're all controlled separately by apps. Again, have usernames and passwords on them. Honestly, a lot of hacking is just guessing people's passwords. It sounds yeah. more complicated than it is hacking, but actually it's just guessing people's passwords in many cases. So having, again, a nice long password on the app that controls those smart devices oh, is yeah. a really effective way. It. Yeah, there's not, I mean, to be honest, when you're talking about home Wi-Fi routers and things, there's not a huge amount you need to do. They're not mm. complicated devices. 
Yeah. I'll do for that. <laughs> well, because I, I saw that you did an episode with Joe Lysett where you you hacked someone's mm. Wi-Fi and uh, you were tricking um, that who's a football commentator, ex-football uh, commentator. Chris yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is that literally just guessing passwords or is there a way to bypass yeah, so Wi-Fi that, without? Yeah, well, it was kind of... For that episode, so if anyone wants to watch it, if you just YouTube Joe Lysett, Lysett Home Hacking, you'll find that episode or the short bit. And that was, so guessing, yeah, I guess the Wi-Fi router's password. Through there, I was then able to control other smart devices on the network. Yeah. Also, the person we were testing also had the same password on his Amazon account, and that allowed me to take control of his Amazon Alexa that he had in the house. Now, using the Alexa, the Alexa was able to control other devices that were connected inside the computer network. So I could then control the smart lights and things like that. But there was another thing in there that was quite funny. They had a Bluetooth karaoke machine. Um, <laughs> and you could connect. So normally with Bluetooth, you have to pair to it. I'm sure everyone's got Bluetooth headphones and things like that. You have to pair to the device. But this thing was always constantly in pairing mode. So you could pair anything within Bluetooth range. So anything within 20, 30 meters, you could pair to this device. And what this device did once you paired to it, if you sent it a voice note or anything, it would read it out loud. So I could send it a message with an Amazon command. So Alexa, do this or whatever. And it would then read it out loud. And then, of course, the Alexa would respond and do the command. So you could kind of relay these signal, these commands through this device to say them out loud to the Alexa and then control everything through there. So it's kind of like chaining it through. So that was really good yeah. fun, really, really good fun. We <laughs> sat outside in the van for about 10 hours just playing around. It was, it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> we all, uh, we'll post the link to the guests or the listeners, uh, at least. I, I have seen this really funny episode. So it's interesting. Once you've just got access to one thing, what you can do with that access. I think that's the yeah, scary exactly, thing. Exactly. And if you took that in the context of someone working from home, you'd then be able to access their laptop that's on and that laptop's connected you through the network, through a VPN to the company network. Because you've got access yeah. to the home Wi-Fi network, you can kind of piggyback on that connection and get into the the company network as well. So that's the kind of work that's done for comedy, that show, if we're talking about it in the sense of a what to worry about as a business. If someone does get onto one of your employees' home Wi-Fi, they could do that piggyback, get into your computer network, and then that's a data breach already, right? You know, we can just yeah. do stuff from there. So. And I mean, look, just looking at cybersecurity, how has it evolved? I know we've touched on some of the evolution of it, but how has it evolved since you first began as a pen tester or penetration tester? I mean, I think the big change that I've noticed is the importance of it to the C-level, to the board, realizing that if we get hit by a ransomware attack, for example, this can be huge. You know, this could be us going out of business in a worst case, but at the very least, it's going to affect share price, affect our reputation, our brand. And that wasn't a thing. 15 years ago, people weren't concerned about that. So we didn't have to worry about that. So from my perspective, you know, selling companies, cybersecurity solutions and services and things was a bit more difficult because they didn't know. You had to convince them they needed it. Whereas nowadays, it's the opposite. You know, Everyone knows they need it. Now it's just a case of, okay, of these million things that we have to choose from in cybersecurity, all these different services and products and whatever else, which one do we go for? So then the convincing is to say, well, you should use ours because this, that, and the other. So that's been the, the big change for me. Also, the sophistication of the, the criminals has gone up massively. So nowadays, we're seeing cyber criminal groups that are incredibly sophisticated, often state-sponsored as well. So they're supported by Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, places like that. The tools and techniques they're using are incredibly professional. They operate like businesses. So if you get hit by a ransomware attack, 
you'll be talking to people they call customer service agents who will speak different languages and will help you on how to pay the ransom fee and all sorts of stuff. I've even spoke to ransomware groups that have a customer satisfaction survey at the end. You know, you pay them a bunch of money for the data they kidnapped and at the end ask you to rate their call center agent out of 10. You know, it's done in the same way as a real business. Wow. So it's, it's, yeah, it's quite amazing. The sophistication of these groups has gone up massively because there's so much money involved, right? You know, when ransomware first came about and I'm, We'll talk about ransomware a lot because it's the main concern of businesses nowadays. When it first came out, it was targeting individual computers. It might be a few hundred dollars. Nowadays, the ransom fees are hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions in some cases, because the alternative is you you can't operate as a business for for weeks or months on end. So you end up paying the ransom fee because it's your only alternative. That has meant the criminals have been able to become that much more sophisticated because they've got more finance. They've got more budget. It attracts a higher quality of criminal that can afford to employ yeah, hackers not you know like me, but on the dark side of, of hacking that are able to write tools for them that can bypass antivirus systems. There are criminals that are incredibly good at writing phishing attacks that are very believable. There are criminals that are very good at breaking into buildings, or doing phone calls, and they all you know, they all sort of subcontract out and hire them in to do various bits of the attack. So yeah, the level of sophistication since I started has has gone up exponentially, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and you only have to make one mistake you know, to let them in. They're working it's like a nine to five job. They're coming to an office. They're literally trying to hack your systems and you can have the most amazing defenses, but it's just one, one slip up and, and they're in. That's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, one employee that's having a bad day, is too busy or whatever, clicks on something yeah. they shouldn't have done. And that's it. Or one system that's left unpatched for a week. They get in that way. One person's using a weak password. There's so many different ways in. That's the fun thing about red teaming is I get to try and find all those different ways into the network. But you know, even I'm restricted. You know, I'm restricted by the budget of the company. They might only pay for me to do two weeks worth of work. You know, a criminal group yeah. that's looking to make millions out of the company might spend months on it. Plus, they also have other yeah. techniques they can use. You know, they can threaten people. They can blackmail. They can bribe. There are levels I'm not allowed to cross, and those are some of them. So you know, a criminal yeah. group has even more leeway than I have. And tell us about. The red teaming, can you just explain a couple of scenarios and and how you would help potential clients with that? Yeah, sure. So red teaming is simulating a full-scale criminal attack. So normally pen testing or penetration testing, you would say, I want to have my website tested or my external infrastructure. You'd scope it out and it'd be limited in what you could do. A red team is much more like a real-world attack where you think about what would the criminal want to steal? So, for example, a while back, I targeted a pharmaceutical company, just finished the R&D on a new drug they were developing that treated a certain illness, and they were going to go public with the information that they'd finished this development, they were ready to go to, to market with it, knowing they would then become more of a target because this research they'd done was worth a lot of money. So red teaming is objective-based. So this company came to me and said, your objective is to get access to this design of this drug and see if you can steal it from our network without getting caught. So all, literally all you are given in a red team is the name of the company and the objective. And you've got to design everything on the back of that. So, you know, you start off very basically, let's have a look at the company's website. Who are they? What do they do? Where are they based? All that sort of stuff. And then you start to sort of scan their internet presence. Are there any particular, particularly interesting things, any holes in there? Then we start to look at their social media. So the corporate social media pages, can we find anything out from there? Can we find photographs of staff wearing their ID badges that maybe we could use to create a fake employee badge and then get into the building? Or then go to LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a brilliant resource because it shows me who the company is and who works there. So most companies will have you know hundreds of employees on LinkedIn. I can then take those names, convert them to their email addresses because I've got 
who you are and where you work. It's not very difficult to work out your work email address from that. And yeah. now I've got a potential distribution list for a phishing attack all from LinkedIn. Even then, I can take those names. If I want to do a more targeted phishing attack just against a couple of people, take those names, find them on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. find out where they've been on holiday recently, for example, and then send them an email that looks like it's come from the hotel they stayed in while they're away, saying they've left some valuables in their room or something. We've attached a couple of photographs to the email. Please let us know if they're yours. Very convincing hook. Looks like it's come from the hotel. I'll even use the logo and the font and everything the hotel uses. a very similar email address. They open up that attachment. And of course, that's a phishing attack, right? The phishing attack is about getting someone to open up a link or attachment. So if I tailor it to them by using the name of that hotel and everything they've just got back from, it's very believable, much more likely they'll open up that attachment. And now you're into the computer network. And now from there, there are lots of techniques to move around that computer network and then steal the drug design that I was talking about. Now, in the example of that pharmaceutical company, I actually ended up physically breaking into their office by dressing up as a, a BT engineer and convincing their reception staff that I was there for some sort of network fault to resolve that and uh-huh. was taken up to the building and got access to the computing network internally and then stole the thing from there. But I mean, there are loads of different ways you can do it. You know, I could talk to you just about that BT example. I could tell you a 45 minute story of, of yeah, how we built sure. it up and how it worked. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's loads of different ways in. You can just go down the pub and get drinking with the staff and then steal an ID badge and use that to get in the building. There's loads of different options for ways of breaking in. So red teaming is good fun and much more realistic as a scenario. And it's really, really suitable for companies that have a decent level of cybersecurity already. Yeah, you know, If you know yeah. you're rubbish at cybersecurity, there's no point in going to that level of sophistication. You start with the basics. But if you're a company that's bought a load of solutions in, done a load of penetration testing and things, it's really useful to know that what you're doing works because the amount of companies that I've tested where they've thought we've got all these systems in place, we've spent millions on these stuff and they haven't realized that they haven't turned on half the things or the staff don't know what they're doing or they haven't got time to look at the alerts so everyone ignores them. And then I just break in, get access to everything, leave the building and no one has any clue that I was there in the first place. And they think, well, why did we spend all those millions of pounds? Well, now you can take that results of that red teaming and, and kind of look at what we've got and say, okay, what do we need to tweak and how can we get the, the best out of it? Yeah. It's very interesting to think of um, one of the ways to increase your chances of a cybersecurity attack is to do a physical element, like actually going in yourself to the building. And people are doing that? Yeah. I mean, is that is that a common way to get into the, the network? It's not the most common, no. When we're talking about actual criminal attacks, more common is technical attacks over the internet, trying to find out date software and things like that, and phishing attacks, or just guessing people's passwords. Most stuff is done over the internet. But there is cyber criminals, and especially nation states like Iran, China, North Korea, places like that will potentially send in agents to break into offices as well. So it does happen. But you can also have it just opportunistically, like people just walking off the street, looking to steal car keys, phones, wallets, that sort of stuff, happen to tailgate through. This happens a lot. And then they steal a laptop. And of course, that then is potentially a data breach because that laptop contains all sorts of information on there. And then you have to report it as a breach and things like that. So even if the person didn't necessarily intend to do a cyber attack, they kind of do it in a, in a roundabout yeah. way. And most companies, obviously, you know, I've done about 200 building intrusions over my career. And most of them are office buildings. I've done some more complicated stuff as well, but most are office buildings. And honestly, you just you wait for people to come back from lunch. You buy a bag from Pret or whatever, wherever it goes, and you just follow people through the door. And people don't yeah. say anything. You know, people are polite, they can be nice. And the bigger the office, the easier it is. If you're talking about an, a big corporate head office with you know a thousand people working there, 
it's impossible for everyone to know everyone. Absolutely. And so everyone just holds the doors open for you and you go through. Even if there's security barriers, you can tailgate behind them and go yeah. through. And you know, sometimes an alarm goes off, but no one pays any attention to it. And then once you're inside, you can be there as long as you want because you're trusted, because you're through. You're inside. You know, maybe I've made a fake ID badge as well to make it look even more legitimate. And yeah, you know, I just relax at that point. I'll go and make myself a cup of tea from the canteen, maybe get myself some lunch, just kind of chill out like a normal employee would. Because the, the, the less suspicious you look and the more relaxed you are, the better, right? You know, people expect you to yeah. look like a criminal when you're doing something, when you're up to no good. But if you don't look like a criminal, you dispel that image. You know, you wear a nice suit and tie like everyone else is wearing. You've got a fake badge. You say good morning to everyone. Just let you in. So, yeah, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen like, on Instagram people doing that with hivers, you know, to get into festivals. Mm. That's where hivers or take a ladder a ladder apparently is a good way to get in anyway they're just like oh he's got a ladder <laughs> let him in um, yeah absolutely so, yeah that's yeah most places to be honest yeah <laughs> and have you been caught when you're doing that so i've only actually been properly caught once and that was relatively early on in in my career of doing social engineering and when you're doing it so that you kind of have three main stages to it the first is like the online research finding out as much as you can about the target building using google maps and street view and things then you move to what we call a hostile reconnaissance which is in person going there finding out where the entrances and exits are what time people arrive at work what they wear what security badges look like all that sort of stuff and this company i was targeting was a, was a very i won't be able to say what type of company it was but it was very secure I thought what I'd do is I'll drive into a public car park that has a view of their building and I'll try and take some photographs and things of the building, of the entrances, CCTV camera positions and things from quite a long way away. So I was in this public car park, but what I hadn't realized is that the company had very recently bought that car park and expanded their perimeter. So that car park was now within their security perimeter and wasn't marked on Google Maps as such. So as I drove in, security guards had clocked me driving in, parking up, and then not leaving the car. And because they were very secure, they were watching me on CCTV. And after five, 10 minutes, when they could see me taking photographs and things, they kind of drove around, boxed me in with a load of Land Rovers, dragged me out of the car and said, you know, what are you doing? I said, I'm bird watching. And they didn't believe me. Um, and they kind of dragged me into this like holding cell within within this building. And, you know, sort of asked me questions. I said, right, okay. I kind of worked out I wasn't going to talk my way out of this. And when I do this type of work, carry around with me what's called a consent form. It's a legal document saying you're allowed to break into our building, our networks, whatever else. It's signed off by one person at the company that knows what's going on. It's kind of like get out of jail free card, we call it. Yeah. So I went to go for that. Security guard thought must have been going for a weapon or something. And I got absolutely flattened by this huge bloke. I was just kind of under there going, oh, help. <laughs> and to bring out this form. Look, so they kicked me out of the building, but then I ended up breaking into one of the other buildings a couple of weeks later. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm properly caught. There are other instances where you get in, maybe you get past reception, and then people are looking at you suspiciously, and you can tell you're not going to be able to get much further. So then you kind of leave the building, and then and then you swap in someone else, because we use multiple people. You need different faces, really. Yeah, so yeah. in all the other cases, which is the vast majority of them, yeah, only one out of 201 have I been properly caught. So it's generally easier. Yeah. As long as you act relaxed and confident, you, you can get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to be educated. And I think culture plays such an important role in cybersecurity because you, you have to make everyone aware where there are risks and it's constantly you know evolving. And do you see that now? Is, it, is culture a big thing that you have to sort of instill that sort of awareness of cybersecurity within a business? Yeah, definitely. So nowadays, the majority of intrusions I do and red teams are followed with a training program that uses the data gathered from that red team really to make it more interesting. So when I'm doing physical mm. intrusions, I'll wear 
cameras on me. I have a pair of glasses where the, the camera is hidden in the screw of one of the arms. It sounds very James Bond, but it actually works really, really well because, of course, it goes wherever you're looking. So I take that video footage and then – so I'll go in and do the staff awareness training. I'm sure most people listening, their, their company does some form of awareness training. However, it's normally – e-learning modules so you buy in a package staff do a, a learning module every year and that's it that's your cybersecurity. that ticks a box yes it ticks a box but it doesn't actually make you more secure because people don't do it like we've all do health and safety training and cyber training all sorts of stuff once you've done it you forget about it completely right and you just move on you do your next thing whereas the training i do when i'm doing part of these red teams and just in isolation is i go in and the idea is i kind of scare scare everyone a little bit and show them what can be done and when you're talking about you know you shouldn't let someone tailgate into the building you're like, oh yeah yeah because this is what happens and then you show them the video of me tailgating one of their employees into the building getting in plugging a device into the network hacking in or stealing a laptop or whatever else and suddenly you go okay that's a lot more believable or likewise if yes. i say you know you should on an attachment like this and they go oh you know then i'm always telling me not to click on links not to click on attachments okay okay well here's what happens when someone did click on that attachment, I was then able to do this, completely compromise the entire network, steal everything. I could steal their personal banking details, all sorts of things. So when you show the sort of the follow through, what happens afterwards when a real criminal does it, it has a lot more of an impact. So in terms of that culture piece, definitely we're trying to instill a kind of a secure culture within organizations can be very difficult. But I think by combining it with some level of red teaming or, or a cut down version where you just do an intrusion or just do a phishing attack or something and then you pair that with examples and stories of things that i've done myself i find that to be a lot more powerful and the feedback i've had from clients is that it's it has much more of a long-term impact on the cultural awareness of, of employees and people are still months yeah. later saying oh i didn't click on because of that training we did a while back whereas the e-learning you know, lasts a couple of days before people have forgotten about it <laughs> Yeah, well, I think from a personal perspective, these are things that will always will help you anyway. But hackers are targeting businesses as, as well as personal. And, you know, I know at the older generation, like my parents, uh, my friends' parents, they've all been subject to these attacks. So it's, I think it's just good awareness anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're right. It's very important in your personal life as much as work. You know, it's easy to focus on, you go to a cybersecurity training at work, you're thinking about work, but actually it's your personal life. You know, if you get your your online banking hack to your PayPal or your Facebook or anything that's important to you and has your really sensitive information about you, that's horrible. Like the amount of work it takes to try and get that money back if you've had money transferred, you might not even get it. Mm. And, you know, one of the cyber attacks we've seen recently as a, as a personal life example is when people are moving house. You know, you talk to a conveyancer and a solicitor and you think people are like involved in the house purchasing process. But nowadays, post-COVID, we don't go and see people in person very often. So we'll be dealing with the conveyance all over email. I might never have met them. And then the day of the, the completion comes in, you're talking about bank account details. And you get an email from the solicitor saying, you know, transfer to, to this bank account. And then a minute later, you get another one from them saying, oh, sorry, there was a typo in there. Please can use this bank account instead. Doesn't sound suspicious. But what you haven't realized is that criminals have access to the conveyance's email account because they're all using Office 365 online. The criminals have been able to log in and they have access to this email inbox in the same way that the solicitor does. It's very easy for them to reply yeah. to the existing email. And to you as the client, you, you have no idea that it's a different person. So, you know, now you've just transferred a hundred thousand pounds to the wrong person and that money's gone, lost. You know, you don't generally get that back from the banks nowadays. It's very important to be aware of cyber attacks in your personal life. It's no longer like a work thing as well. And, and as yeah. I mentioned earlier, we can target your personal social media and use that as a way of, tricking you into opening up an email that gives access to your work 
stuff. So there's kind of this mm. blend now between work and personal that's not going to go away. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, just to bring it back to the sort of company focus and to talk about mm. ransomware, I know because you we did an interview with you on CEO to Digital where you did speak about ransomware and um, some of the points are quite interesting. So I just wanted to find out, you know, from your expertise, what should companies do during or after a ransomware attack? What's the best way to manage something like that in your experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so first of all, it's important to kind of know how long ago it happened in a way. If we can contain the attack, that's perfect. So if we know one person's just clicked on an email, it's just run some ransomware, brilliant. Disconnect everything from the network, from that device so we isolate it off. A bit like you would deal with a virus, right? Someone gets a virus, you isolate them off and quarantine them. It's the same sort of idea. However, if that ransomware is already spread around the entire network and encrypted everything, then of course you've got a bit more of a problem. So first thing you do is you talk to your cyber insurers. If you've got a cyber insurance company, you, you phone them up and say, we've been hit by a, a ransomware attack. We need your expertise and guidance. And they'll have third-party companies that they can get involved in helping you out, contain and recover from that. Or you may have relationships with cybersecurity companies like, like Phalanx or, or any other that you can phone up and say, we need a bit of advice. What do we do? What's what's our process? You should also be following an instant response plan. Hopefully, you've got something in place. You know, it might be tailored more towards, you know, what if there was an earthquake or whatever, but you, know, you should ideally have an instant response plan that is tailored towards cyber attacks as well. So then if you're having a ransomware attack, you just look at this playbook and go, okay, we know what to do. We know we phone these people, these phone numbers, they come in and we start containing the incident from there. The idea, hopefully, is that we can restore all the data from our backups. So if we've got backups of that data and those backups have been completely separated from the main network. So a lot of mistakes companies make is that their backups are either on the same network or they're connected to via the cloud. And that has a connection through the main network to upload the backups and things like that. If it's connected to the main network in any way, the criminals can get to it. They're sophisticated now enough that they know how backup solutions work and they can compromise those and destroy those backups before running the encryption on the main network. And then you're in a really bad place at that point because you haven't got your data anymore. So in an ideal world, we have completely separate so we can then start restoring and then we don't have to engage with the cyber criminals. However, if we get to the stage where we have to engage with the cyber criminal because we have lost that data, then again, we have to do that through the cyber insurance provider if we have one, because they'll be covering at least a, a good chunk of that ransom fee and they need to be involved in that negotiation process. But then at that point, you're talking about actually negotiating with the cyber criminals. In most cases, you can do. So if you get to that stage, you can negotiate and ask for a reduction in the ransom fee and they'll usually do some form of, of reduction. The risk as well, though, is that those criminals would have stolen the data as well. So many cyber criminals nowadays will not only encrypt everything, they'll also steal the data and threaten to release that data as well. So even if you pay the ransom fee, you've got that risk that they've still got access to the data. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in. In an ideal world, we prepare in advance and we have separate backups in place that we can restore those and then perhaps we don't have to engage with the cyber criminal. And uh, cyber insurance, that's the first time I've heard that. Um, is that something mm. that really just large enterprises take out? No, it's often smaller businesses as well. SMEs will have it. It often comes as part of the office insurance nowadays. So you have an insurance policy. They're not brilliant. You know, there are lots of reasons they don't pay out, just like car insurance. You know, they'll find any way they can not to pay out on the fee. So if you're not doing you know, these 
30 different steps of cybersecurity, they won't pay out. So very, if you have cyber insurance, if you're thinking about getting it, it's very important you look at the small print about when they won't pay you and what you have to be doing in order to be eligible for it. But also there is a thing at the moment that cyber criminals are actively targeting companies that have cyber insurance because they know they're more likely to pay. If you think about it, you know, if I'm a cyber criminal and I know you've got a policy up to 5 million, I'm going to charge you 5 million, right? So it's more likely I'll target you if I find out somehow that you've got an insurance policy. So if you do have it, don't be broadcasting it anywhere. Don't be telling anyone that you have cyber insurance because it actually paints a target on your back. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way. Interesting. Just to go back to the ransomware, obviously you don't have to mention names, but what's the worst ransomware attack you've seen or been involved in? Yeah, I can't say any names, but I've had a couple of companies where the entire network's been encrypted. They've gone to retrieve the backups and the criminal has got into those backups, destroyed those as well. You know, this company, they their employees woke up one morning to start work as normal, logged onto their laptops, everything's encrypted. Phone up the IT team, our laptops are encrypted as well. IT team look at the backups, those are encrypted. Suddenly, you know, to this this company they phoned me up and went, We haven't got anything. All our data's gone. Our entire network. So imagine this is your business and you don't have any data at all. You don't operate as a business anymore, right? Without any data, what do you have? Like what you've got what's in your head and what's written down on paper, which probably isn't enough to construct a business anymore. If it is, it's going to take you a long time and very expensive. You don't know who your clients are, you don't know what work you're doing for them or anything. And this you know, ransomware can get into cloud applications and things as well. So it's not just restricted to, to servers and stuff like that. Yeah. So they came to me and said, you know, what do we do at this point? And I was like, well, you haven't got much alternative. You haven't got your data anymore. There's no way of getting it back. The, the encryption they're using is unbeatable. You're going to have to negotiate with the cyber criminals and talk to them. So this is a, quite an awful situation because they ended up paying you know, a very significant ransom fee because they haven't got an alternative. You know, as much as I can say to them, you know, we don't want to be funding criminal enterprises and the police say don't pay ransom fees and things. When you're a business facing that situation where you don't have anything anymore, you end up having to because you've literally got no choice. And at that point, it's too late. You need to, to prepare for it beforehand. You had some alternatives and a way of blocking it before it got that. But the business didn't have the right defenses in place. It didn't have any network monitoring. It didn't have the right protection on the outside. They didn't have the backups in the right area. So they ended up suffering the consequences. So the, the clients that I deal with, is about putting proactive controls in place and then having an instant response. And if it all goes wrong, like we've got the controls in place, it means it shouldn't go wrong. And if it does, it's not as bad. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Very interesting. How would you defend against an attack like that? And is there like a incident response plan as well that's to think about following something like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's loads of steps in, in defending against a cyber attack, but most criminals are looking for the low-hanging fruit, the easy things to exploit. So the way they get in is something simple. So in order to defend against that, it's about some basic stuff like keeping your systems up to date, you know, installing all the patches and things. And that sounds boring, but it's actually quite essential to stopping criminals from getting in. Combining that with anything that you have on the internet, so your email, your VPN, anything where your staff log into or have access to sensitive data should be protected by multi-factor authentication, that separate code that you get sent through to your mobile or maybe you have an app on your phone that does it. And then strong passwords. Again, we're looking for sort of really 14 characters is the sweet spot nowadays. But I, I advise to use sentences. I use a, a sentence instead of a, a single word, and it's a very good way of constructing a password. So we have that as kind of the outside protection then inside 
we have, obviously we have antivirus, everyone has antivirus, but the next sort of level of antivirus that we're using nowadays is called EDR or endpoint detection and response, which is much better at responding to and blocking things like ransomware. Traditional antivirus is really no longer good enough. If it was, we wouldn't be seeing so many cyber attacks all the time that were successful because antivirus were blocking it. Every company has antivirus, right? But we're still seeing cyber attacks all the time. EDR is that next level. You can think of it as next generation antivirus. But my advice is to go one step above that. And this is what we do at Phalanx as, as well as the stuff I do is detection. So what we call managed detection and response, where you basically have sensors all over your network looking for anything strange going on. So the moment a file starts getting encrypted or a file starts leaving the network or anything weird happens, these sensors effectively go, whoa, hang on, this is weird, sends it to some human analysts. So we, so we have a place in Reading where we have our analysts. They go, okay, that looks suspicious. And then we can take action straight away. So you're essentially kind of outsourcing your security to, to experts who can then go, right, this looks weird. Let's shut that system off from the network, stop the ransomware from spreading. We can then work out how it got in and then update the defenses to, to protect against that. So that's the kind of modern day defense that most companies should be operating is accepting that, yes, we want to make the perimeter as hardened as possible, but against a good cyber criminal, they're probably going to find a way in. Now, once they're inside, let's make it as difficult as possible for them because as soon as they do anything weird, the detection software and, and analysts trip that and they find it and they stop it straight away. So that's kind of the next level. And then it's what you talked about. If somehow it gets through all of those layers, we then have an instant response plan in place that means we know what to do. And my kind of top three for an instant response plan would be make sure that you have the right people and the right contact details and everything ready to go. So the first thing on that instant response piece should be who forms our instant response group. So, you know, our CEO, our CFO, uh, we need a legal person, we need someone from marketing and comms because they're going to have to talk to the media potentially and, and customers. And uh, we need an HR person because it could be staff data that's impacted as well. So we need representatives and then perhaps from client teams as well, but talking to the clients, we need to inform them of what's going on. So if the website goes down and they get a request from the client saying what's going on, you know how to respond and things. So that's our first thing. We have who's on that group, and then what third-party companies do we get? So we have those contact details and make sure they're up to date. Then practice it. So once we've constructed the plan, this is what we're going to do if a ransomware attack happens, if a data breach happens, if an earthquake happens, whatever. Practice it. Make sure it works. You know, Make sure the people that are on that list can get together in a room and work together and, and know what they're doing. So when it really happens, you don't have what happens to most companies where everyone panics and no one knows what to do. Hmm. Last step, which is it's quite funny because lots of companies don't think about this, Make sure that instant response plan and all the phone numbers and things are actually accessible. Because if you get hit by a ransomware attack, your computer network goes down. So if your instant response plan is stored on your computer network, on, in your SharePoint or whatever, that's of no use whatsoever because your network's just gone down. You don't have access to that. So you need, literally, the people in the instant response group need hard copies of it printed out. And when you do updates, you send them a new copy. They need the phone numbers of the other people in the instant response group in their phone or in a WhatsApp group or something that's not email, you know, there's no point in, in having the instant response group as an email group or a Microsoft Teams group or whatever, when all those systems are going to go down if you get hit by a ransomware attack. So you need to have something separate. So WhatsApp quite, is quite a good one, but any other secure messaging app where you have a group ready established to go, this is our instant response group. Okay, something's happened. We just kick this in and we know what to do. We're not panicking going, oh, oh who's in the group? How do we contact them and stuff? So, mm. Yeah, fairly simple. But the number organizations i've talked about talked to where they have their instant response plan on their network that's not going to work is it <laughs> yeah exactly 
Excellent tips. Like you say, super simple, but these are things you just, I think, overlook practicing as well. Very, very important. So we are coming to the end of the episode, Rob, but before we did wrap up, do you have any sort of predictions when it comes to cyber this year? Yeah. So I think one of the big things that I'm seeing is when we think about phishing attacks and phishing attacks are the primary concern because it's the way that most companies are compromised. You know, someone opens up a legal attachment, but we focus our attention as businesses on email. We think they're going to come in via email. It's all about email attachments and links and things like that. But actually the criminals are clever and they realize that email is the best defended system in most companies' networks. You know, you might have Mimecast or any other solution in place protecting that email. Yeah. I've got to deliver you a link or an attachment as a criminal. I don't care how it gets to you. So actually what criminals are doing and I'm seeing increasing over the course of this next year is criminals contacting employees through Instagram, through LinkedIn, through text messages, through WhatsApp, you know, convincing them to open something through their personal Instagram account while they're on their computer, on their work computer, because that works better. It bypasses most of the defenses. We're not going through the email at any point employees' defences are down. They're not thinking about it as a potential way of phishing because they haven't been told that that's a way they can do it, which is why, again, security awareness training needs to be up to date with what's happening right now. I, As a criminal, I, I convince you to click on that link through LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever. It's much more likely that you'll open it up and it's more likely to bypass the defences as well. So I see that expanding even further over the next year as criminals look for ways to get that initial way into a company network so that they can then deploy that ransomware. And alongside that, I see the other thing is the sophistication of ransomware is already very high, but it's going to go up even higher. You know, criminals are going to be increasing the ransom fees. They're going to be finding new ways into networks, and they're going to be able to access companies' backups even more than they are now because they're, they're just learning how all of those systems work. So it's going to get more and more sophisticated as the year goes on. Great. Well, yeah, that's something that's not great, but scary, but um, I think solid predictions there and definitely worth, worth speaking about. And then final question for you is, do you have any tips or, or I guess the predictions are sort of like tips, but, you know, someone who's aspiring CISO, anything that you can share with them that would add value to their sort of day-to-day and, and help them in their jobs? Yeah. So I would say, you know, if your primary concern is the security of the business and making sure that during your tenure as CISO, you're not going to be dealing with a data breach. Very first thing, look at what you've got as a company, especially internet facing. So what login pages have you got? You know, I speak to large organizations and they're like, we haven't really got a clue what we've got out there. We've got so much stuff. We've lost track of what it is and where it is and where that data is stored and things. So do a kind of an inventory attack surface mapping is one, one way of putting it, but there's loads of different terms for it. Find out what you've got. Yeah then think about what logins that you have externally come into your network or into any personal sensitive data for your employees or your clients or anything and make sure those are super well protected. So what I mean is long passwords, two-factor authentication, and they're bang up to date with the latest software versions to reduce the chances of anyone getting in. So that's your first layer. So then you're hardening the outside. Then I strongly, strongly encourage you to put detection onto your network. And I know know, that's what Phalanx do. So of course I'm going to be saying about that but the reason we do it is because it works right we wanted to as a company you know i I helped shape what the company does and that's like that's what we've got to do because that's what works because you know i've done this for a living for a long time i know when i get inside a computer network and that's not the hard bit getting inside isn't hard there's loads of ways to do that when i get inside if i'm going to steal any data or encrypt any data i've got to do certain things 
And if you know what to look for, those things are quite easy to detect. So if you have the right stuff in place to do that, then you can detect that. So I would say, you know, if you're a CISO nowadays, look at that outside, look at your detection, and then make sure you've got a good backup process that is completely separate from your main network and you have an instant response plan in place. Thank you.